Welcome to the Axiom Podcast. This is episode 59. I'm here with Devin, as usual. Hello, everyone. And today we have a special guest, John Blake. Uh, John is joining us to share his accumulated wisdom and knowledge. And it's going to go over a lot of different areas. It's probably <laughs> wide ranging, but welcome, John. Thanks for uh, carving out your afternoon to spend with us. Thanks, Joey and Devin. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about you and, and what John is about, where he came from, what he's doing today. What's your background? Sure. So we have time set aside. For this. <laughs> yeah, a, lot of, a lot of time. So I'll give you the high level. The high level is roughly 25 to near 30 years of experience um, across the board, large corporate environments early on in my, in my career, evolving to a divisional operating role at a billion-dollar media company where I was largely charged with with turning struggling struggling assets around. So I was the guy that, that sort of put perfume on the pig and got it ready either <laughs> right. for divestiture or, or got it ready to re, for reinvestment um, from the organization. And I did that for a period of time. Much of it was, uh, was a lot of sort of, you know, breaking things down, unpacking business models, and then rebuilding, um, you know, new, new, new structures, new processes, new strategies in order to restore and revitalize the business. So a lot of the skills that I had developed in those first 12 to 13 years of my career were incredibly helpful to me in the second half of my career where, where I reinvented myself as an early stage startup guy. Okay. Uh, founded uh, a few internet, uh, early stage internet companies back when, you know, when, when the internet arrived in your mailbox in the form of an AOL CD. Right. Right. So way, way before, you know, way before, you know, the, the traction that it currently enjoys. But uh, so I launched a couple, you know, venture backed businesses that, uh, that were focused on, you know, largely business to consumer. And then for the more recent nine years under Authorio Digital, I've really been a hired gun, mm-hmm. where I, I have investors and board members, private equity, um, angels, sometimes VC-backed organizations that drop me into senior operating roles, and, and largely because they've hit growth stalls. Okay. And, and my task is to figure out what's wrong, what's needed to grow it, and then to put the right resources and the strategy in place to do that. Okay. So not dissimilar to your business in yeah. a lot of ways. No, and I think that's one of the reasons you and I yeah. hit it off. And it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to explain to Devin um, how we came to know each other, yeah. and I couldn't remember. And yeah. then I went back, you know, I'm like searching through my email history. I know, I know it's in here somewhere. And yeah. sure enough, uh, Jamie Marco, so shout out to Jamie Marco if she's listening, yes. uh, had the foresight to introduce us and I think saw a lot of uh, similarities in our, our makeup and what we like to do and, and how we do it. And so it's been really interesting for me to use you as a sounding board. We've talked about my business and, mm-hmm. and, and yours and just having a, an opportunity to, to work with another master problem solver. You know, I kind of, yes. that's one of the roles that I kind of see you in. I read a statistic, uh, I was doing some, some earlier research today and I read a statistic about, uh, failure rates, but uh, it's like small business administration. But one of the interesting things was like the number one reason small businesses fail is lack of market demand. And you and I have talked before about, you know, you're, you have a, a good kind of savvy marketing uh, understanding and what is the value that a certain product or service is supposed to deliver? Is it doing that? Is it doing that to the right audience? Or is the messaging working well? Um, and so uh, uh, this is kind of off script, I mean, but I'm, I'm wondering... In your previous roles, uh, to what extent were you in the startup world actually, you know, you're trying to have to validate whether there's a market demand for something or Mm -hmm. you've seen validation and then you go out and build the product. But also uh, in the 
the ones where you were putting the lipstick on the pig, so to speak, was it a marketing role or is it more of an operational role? Was it tweaking something? Was it changing a product to meet a market demand or pruning stuff that didn't meet what was? Yeah, so it's it's a little of everything, uh, actually. And, and, and it, I don't know the statistic, but I, I, I could relate to it, I will tell you. And, and that's largely because I, I happen to hold this fundamental belief that no matter how good is, how, no matter how strong your product or how seasoned your management team, none of that will survive a bad market. Right? Right. And so, you know, market wins the day. And, and that's where, frankly, a lot of businesses fail because they get all jacked up on their own Kool-Aid, right? They, they, they see an opportunity, they can relate to that opportunity for a product or a service, and then they go, you know, whole hog into it without, without performing, you know, thoughtful due diligence on that market. And that's, and that's all about sort of understanding the customer segment and their disposition and their motivations and their needs uh, and their purchasing cycle. And so, you know, the ventures that I've been involved with, I can't recall a single one that wasn't led by a deep customer engagement dive, right, to fully understand what the market is and what the competition looks like and where there are gaps that are being left unattended. And it's usually those gaps where there is um, there there's opportunity, and 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 so I, I subscribe also to this to this expression that there is riches in the niches, <laughs> and and it's usually those unattended market gaps that represent the most lucrative business opportunities. And so when I go into either whether it's an early stage, organization that's trying to get past sort of product market fit or validation or. I'm into an existing business that's stalled out and has sort of hit a growth plateau. It all comes back and starts with the customer. So what does that look like? If you're the guy who's brought in and you say, we need to do that deep dive and find out what is the state of the customer market and where is our product fitting? Mm -hmm. Is that something you hire other experts to come in and do and do focus groups or surveys? (laughs) Do you... you do secret shopping like from a tactical perspective what does it look like yeah so it depends on the assignment but uh you know being a i guess i'm a i have to call myself a startup guy because when i was in the corporate world one of the problems i had in that environment was that uh, i'm a i'm i actively seek problems to solve right and Mm -hmm. in a big corporate environment that goes outside of my purview in many cases right so i can't solve a lot of the problems i see and that i want to get involved with so the small business sort of situation really does lend itself to that. But, um, and, and so in, in, a early stage, in an early stage growth company or startup firm, you know, you have to master doing a lot with less or little. And so I've done a lot of this stuff myself. So you didn't have a $100,000 budget to go hire those, a consulting firm. Those and- were the days, <laughs> man. So it's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of, you know, personal grinding through it. But, you know, it starts with, um, assembling a cast of stakeholders. You know, who are the people that have either the tribal knowledge or the unique insight or the voice of the customer? It involves, you know, industry partners. It involves current employees and executives. And, of course, it involves customers, both those you serve and those that you've lost. So it's identifying, um, you know, the cast of characters or stakeholders in any one of these assignments. And then it's 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 you know, putting together a, sort of a methodical, a methodical approach to engaging all of them. And it generally starts with, you know, with, with interviews and okay. 
Uh, I tried questionnaires, and that's just too distant. You know, you really have to be able to engage in a conversation and read between the lines when you're trying to understand, you know, customer motivations, disposition, and and sort of the process they go through. Yeah. You know, those trigger events yeah. that make them do things that are good for our business. So it seems that, uh, like in the B2C world, that's probably a little bit more arduous. You know, like you'd have to, I mean, do you have to get a large enough statistical sample to make sure that you're hearing enough interviews to, to kind of draw conclusions? Whereas B2B, you might be dealing with a little bit more sophisticated buyer uh, where a, a smaller number of interviews might yield more fruit. Um, is that does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So w- when you're talking at, at, at a high strategic level about changing, you know, the focus of a business enterprise, that's that's big, right? Mm-hmm. That's that, that you're moving people, you're moving process, you're moving product to a different spot where there's opportunity. But <clears throat> it starts with with baby bites, right? Like little sort of hypotheses that you form about the product or about the market or about the customer base, and then a series of tests that that you have to perform to validate that. So in the world of B2C, that 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 you could get to product market fit and validation on some aspect of a hi- hypothesis through a focus group. Okay. Right? Of twelve people. As long as those twelve people were were representative of the market that you're intending to serve. So it can be done in short form and, and then and then so it's a series of those those experiments and those examinations as the strategy starts to to take shape. But it all starts with, obviously, the feedback from those customers and, and, and applying that feedback in a way that, you know, informs and shapes the strategy going forward. Yeah. You know, I, I think when, when we think about our, our listeners, our listener base, there's a lot of small businesses. And I think sometimes there's a, a, maybe a, a myth that they're believing that, you know, I'm just I'm just a small business. I, I, I work in Sarasota, Manatee County. I serve a local market. I, I'm I'm either I know my customer base enough that I don't think I need to do focus groups or my industry is pretty standard. I don't I don't think that there's much innovation that's going to happen. I don't think there's there's much for me to do for my customers other than continue to focus on customer service, better their experience. Um, but the products or services that we offer are not going to change very much. Uh, and so I don't, I don't really need focus, focus groups. Might be something that they either, they just believe they don't need because they, they think, you know, they have a certain idea or maybe they think that they're just too small or they don't have the right amount of resources. So what would, practically, what does that look like focus groups wise or understanding your cu- customer or understanding maybe a niche in your industry? Sure. For smaller businesses, yeah. So focus groups sort of connote that there's some you know institutional process behind right, this, right? right? And, it, and it can be that way. It can yeah. be very sophisticated and really well scripted. And then it could be just a casual conversation where you offer to feed a lunch to ten of your very best customers within a 25 mile radius because you want to have a conversation with them about how they're feeling about their company, their relationship with us, the businesses, the products that they're acquiring, and identifying ways and or just capturing their insight on where they see the market moving, right? And the market movement is always going to be defined by the problems that they're tasked with solving, right? And those are 
I have to believe, unless you're selling a sort of a commodity product, that is always under sort of development and, and, and underway. And so I think that it could start with simple phone calls. You know, I'm in the process of, I've got a, a research project that, that is underway right now where we're trying to validate an opportunity for a brand new business in, in home care services for a very narrow customer segment. And I've got 20 interviews that I've got to line up with individuals representing that focus group. And it's really not, not fo that market segment. And it's really nothing more than an outreach that starts with either an email or a phone call, the scheduling of an appointment, and then a, um, a discussion guideline that you're using, right, as a template for every one of those conversations that you have. Because you want the same questions being asked to elicit the same sort of input in those areas. So it could be a conversation, a phone call. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, the two-way mirror in, right, in, in, right. In, the, in, the, you know, in an academic or institutional setting. It could be just, come on over, I've got some pizza and some soft drinks, and I'd like to spend some time just talking to you about your job. I have a, a nervous tick that develops whenever somebody mentions focus group because 20 years ago when I was part of a web startup, uh, we were doing focus groups and, um, and it was, everybody wanted to go to the focus group and they would always do them like after hours. Mm -hmm. And so everybody in the office would be like, Hey, you know, there's a focus group tonight. Are you going? Are you going? And there, you know, like 10 of us on the management team and you would show up behind the two way mirror. Yes. And the the only reason everybody wanted to go is because there was this incredible buffet spread, you know, right? And so like theater seating and there's, you know, everybody's having a beer or a glass of wine as we watch these unsuspecting, you know, users give us feedback. And then uh, the reason I get the nervous tick is because we were a startup and we're trying to raise money, which meant we had a limited amount of money in the bank until we could raise the next amount. And I got the bills because I was, I was the controller and I saw the obscene amount of money we were paying for that buffet dinner and some facilitator to walk 10 people through an exercise. I was like, holy cow, this is insane. We could have done this in our conference room, you know, for, for the cost of Subway sandwiches, you know, we would have been there. But I like how you say, uh, you, you know, you kind of remove the mystique of it. And one of the biggest takeaways I just got out of that is it does need to be semi-formal, semi-structured in the sense that you've got the same bullet points and you want to you want to hit the same topics with each person so Correct. that you can compare notes and see whether things are really being validated. I think one of the things that we're experiencing among our clients, a lot of our clients had the best year ever last year in the midst of a pandemic. Now, we're not, we're not heavy into retail and hospitality. Uh, we don't do restaurants, um, just not a part of our, it has been in the past, but it's not a part of our current book of business. And we do a fair mix of B2C and B2B businesses. Um, but we're also in Southwest Florida, right, where construction is ridiculous. So much is driven by the construction, the housing industry. Uh, we've got a great influx of people. So anything around home services is, is tend to do well. And one of the, the checks that I have right now, the questions that I want to get your thought on is like, you know, the, you've heard the adage sales hide sins, right? So, you know, when, when sales are good, a lot of other stuff can be bad mm -hmm. and you don't notice it until it's too late, you know, to really do much about it other than stem the bleeding. And I wonder for, you know, if, if you're being brought into a situation where, hey, the company's not doing well. And you're like, okay, let's call timeout. We need to do some focus groups. We need to find out what's happening with our customer base. Is our product still relevant or not? Uh, but in a market where things are booming, 
I wonder how many businesses are going to be still asking those questions, mm-hmm. you know, of like, are, do we, are we still in touch? Because the other thing that we're seeing is this market is attracting a lot of competition. And if, you're, if your market share is, if your business isn't growing right now, something's wrong. If you're, in, if you're in home services or anything tangentially located to real estate and building and people coming to the area um, and you're not growing, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are okay treading water, you know, and if the owners are treating them as kind of lifestyle businesses where they support their standard of living, they're fine with that. But what could be happening in the background is more competition is coming into the area chasing those dollars eating up some of their market share, but the rising tide is keeping their their top-line revenue the same. So have you run into situations where things seem to be okay, but you go in and you, you start to maybe try to optimize the business rather than turn it around? And what are the questions you're asking there any different, or is the approach any different from when you're trying to do kind of a wholesale review of mm-hmm. the, the market or the product? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't have a lot of experience with businesses that are performing in, in, in peak form, right? right. And, and they need my help. But, but I have seen situations where businesses that seemingly are doing well are, are not are not able to explain why they're doing well. Mm -hmm. There there is a level of sort of complacency and general acceptance that they're doing well because the business is performing well, when in fact, you know, they may find that there is an event or a cycle that they're not paying attention to that runs the risk of eroding their business, right? So uh, I uh, I would encourage those companies that appear to be doing well to be examining ways in which they could accelerate and scale that. So I'd be, I'd challenge those types of businesses to tell me and then to demonstrate um, those aspects of their operations, largely in the sales and or marketing areas, because that's just generally where I, I tend to, that's my, that's my jam, mm-hmm. um, to identify th- those areas of sales and marketing that have proven to work. Because if you have something in sales and marketing, a best practice process, or such that's proven to work you should be able to apply that repeatedly and get the same result right mm-hmm. which was suggest even if business is good it could be better right and so i'd encourage those businesses just to examine those those best practices that they think have proven to work in generating revenue and test that and if, and if they have to step on the pedal uh, unless they're complacent with their growth goals. Too. Yeah, that's a good it's good insight. I think about how many of our clients are doing quite well. Uh, they're pushing, I don't know if record, but near record levels of profit to the bottom, the pre-tax bottom line. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, okay, so where are we reinvesting a portion of this profit? A lot of businesses just put it on autopilot and say, well, the industry spends 3% on advertising, so we're going to we're going to spend 3%, and since revenue went up, we're going to spend even more in it this next year. But uh, to your point, um, you know, it behooves us to take a close look at their sales process and say, like, what elements of the sales process could we scale? Like, it, if, it, the pro- if, the, if the procedure works, if the pitch works, is it just a question of adding more salespeople, and how long is it going to take to scale them up, and what are we going to have to invest in base? And let's, let's plug yes. our money into that. Yes. And I think... Uh, 
I think asking that question or, or kind of pushing a hypothesis like that, I think a lot of business owners probably know where the, the skeletons are or where the dead bodies are in terms of like the things in their business. They know this is not exactly where we would want it to be or we got a problem over here. Maybe we've got two all-star salespeople and we got two that are okay and we got two that are riding coattails, but you know, I don't want to have any difficult conversations. And if we were to come in and say, hey, let's take some, some of those profits and let's add a seventh salesperson, mm -hmm. the pushback we're going to get is like, well, before we add a, a new person, why don't we fix some of the people we've got? Well, yeah, that's a, why weren't we talking about that yesterday? Like, why, why did I have to say hire a seventh one before you decided to fix number five and six? Yes. Um, but when you talk about scaling, uh, I'm interested to hear some of the, the examples you might be able to point to from your successes like were there any common kind of scaling um usual suspects where you're like it, it would it be uh, a particular marketing channel and putting more money in it would it be um moving from you know maybe one geographic market and expanding that to a different geographic market like what were some of the the easiest wins you would have in the scaling world I don't know that there's any easy wins in that world. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's all, it's all heavy lifting. But I tell you, one of the biggest challenges I have as an independent coming in to solve a scaling issue is that there is a, there's, there's, they, I have clients, I've had clients, <clears throat> CEOs, founders of organizations that, that hire me because they want to scale their business. And, and they don't know what scaling means. Really what they're asking for is iterative growth, which is, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. a lot easier than scaled growth, right? Scaled growth, where, iterative, where, where, where growth is iterative, scale is exponential, right? And so they don't understand right. that delta. We're not talking about growing 10, 15%. We're talking about growing 25 to 45% a year, right? And that is, that's a huge ask. Right. And so, so it's, it's first sort of recalibrating their expectation around what scale is and what they really need given, given where they are. But the other sort of common trap that I've seen a lot, of, a lot of founders and small business owners get in is thinking that scale and the ability to scale is almost exclusively a sales and marketing function. And, and I was on an assignment actually for a year managing a 140-person team both here and in India that you know is a 40-year-old business, very predictable revenue stream with recurring base of customers they've had forever. And they want to scale it. And, and what they, in the code, in between the lines, what they were asking you to do was hire more salespeople <laughs> to scale the business. So mm -hmm. you hire more scale, salespeople. And, and what they didn't realize was that they didn't have a single sales practice or tool that was proven to work. So the guy before me tried scaling. <laughs> And he put more bodies in the sales team, and it, and it almost crushed the organization. And, and it crushed it on two levels. One is um, they didn't have any established best practices. They just grew by virtue of upsell, cross-sell of existing customers, not new logo acquisitions. Really different way of growing. And then second, secondarily, they, they almost crushed them because they didn't have the operations chops in the back room to deliver um, against success on the front end. Right, so mm -hmm. you're successful in acquiring new customers, but you can't onboard them fast enough or keep them happy enough to maintain that strong customer retention 
percentage, right, or rate that you've been experiencing for the last couple of years. Right. So when 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 I talk about scale, I'm talking about I'm talking about examining every aspect of an organization's customer touch points from the marketing that you're in scale is also about efficiency, right? So the market and being able to acquire customers at a at a known and predictable and repeatable rate, um, landing those customers, onboarding those customers, and then retaining those customers. So it's going from the front end of the funnel all the way back to the renewal mm -hmm. uh, processes and systems you have in place to ensure customer success. So that's all sort of tied together yeah. with scale. So I encourage comp my, my clients to be thinking about scale, not just from a customer acquisition standpoint, but all the way through to the renewal stage. Yeah, we've. I think about. Sorry, I, I think about my kids, and it sounds like what you're saying is is similar to a, a bath toy that they have, right? So they have bath toys that have. There's these little cups, and they have different shapes, punch out shapes on the bottom. So when you pull the water out, it falls in a particular manner, right? Some of yeah. them look like raindrops, and others look like crosses. If we wanted to scale that, right? You just think get a bigger bucket, right? Fill it with more water. That's how you grow. But you have to scale the holes, too. And so the same amount of water is falling out, even though you grow the bucket. And yeah. kind of you need that iterative process to draw, not just increase the number of inbound leads, but the operations shops to plug some of those holes so that, yeah, you grow the bucket. But you also got to plug some of the holes along the way so yes. that you can maintain and grow and, and hold that growth. Yes. Is that, that's what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, this is Joey Brannon. I want to take a quick time out just to tell you a little bit more about Axiom and the work that we do. We work with closely held businesses on strategic growth. What that means is that we come alongside the business owners, we help them get clear about where their business is going, and then we engage their leadership team to build plans for growth and then execute those plans. If you're a business owner and you're trying to grow or you're looking for future growth or maybe you're just trying to manage the current growth that you have and you're looking for some help, you want somebody to come alongside you, to give you the tools, to show you what accountability looks like, to build the skill set of your team so that you can step away from the business while it continues to grow, give us a call. You can find more information at axiomstrategic.com. I think even in the iterative, I think Interesting analogy. we probably deal more in the iterative growth area than the scale growth area. Um, our clients may go through some 25 to 40%, you know, hiccups or, you know, periods, but uh, they're usually pretty short lived. But even in the iterative growth where you might be talking about 10 to 15% growth, we definitely see kind of the stair step of growth where, you know, we are, we're all about driving the sales and then things in the back office start to break down because they can't keep up with the right. volume of coming through. And so then you're like, okay, now we got to staff up the back. And there's always this dance between, you know, trying to stay ahead of it on the production front and continue to drive the work in. And so production and sales, production and sales are always, and we can measure some of that through labor efficiency metrics, you mm -hmm. know, so f for every dollar of labor you're spending, how much revenue is being generated. And we see if we see that that efficiency metric, you know, take off for quite a while, we know we're probably going to redline pretty soon, and we're going to give some of that up for a little bit mm -hmm. until we staff back up, you know, right. and get it where it needs to be. Um, but when you're talking about businesses that are are trying to scale, uh, when when they have failure, <laughs> like who who's the person? 
that you when you if you walk into a team and you say you and they say John we've hired, we want you to scale this business and you're like okay do you understand the difference between iteration and scale and like one's exponential one's incremental yeah. yes we got it we want you to scale the business and you come in and you take stock of the leadership team what's the first place you look for weakness like where's the first point of failure you might see in, in the execution of that and yeah, so so we, we uncover that through usually in the first phase of the engagement, which is you know a, an assessment of the business and and we look at all aspects of the business, right? We look at the operations aspect of the business, we look at the culture aspect of the business, we look at sales, marketing, or you know sort of the revenue house, mm-hmm. and um, and almost without fail. You know, the companies that are having problems are having problems because they lack alignment, right? They, 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 they lack the, the discipline to, to build um, a well-thought-out strategy and then to communicate that strategy throughout the organization in a way where every single person that's privy to it is very clear in what their sort of functional role is mm-hmm. and, and how that role contributes to the overall growth of the business. So it's, you're smiling. You've seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> you're speaking it's, our language. It's, yeah. it's really alignment. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the, the front office not talking to the back office yeah. and ensuring that everyone is very clear about the role they play in contributing to that growth. Yeah. And that's where it falls back, where it falls short. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take a, a little straw poll. And so I'm going to say, in the world of small business, we play typically in the, let's say, 2 to $50 million revenue range um in your estimation what percentage of businesses in that group have alignment where that you know through the organization everybody understands the strategy their relevance and role in the strategy and how what they're doing contributes to it or or their failure to perform detracts from it Uh, so this may shock you but i I would be surprised and blown away if it's more than 20% okay. that actually have that. And I'd say I might even go down to 15%. I'd say it's about 10, give or take, a few percentage points. Yeah. That's your experience? Yeah. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? I would maybe my... Are you, being, uh, are you a little bit more uh, optimistic? No, I'm probably a lot more jaded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I won't even, I'm embarrassed to mention the number I was going to put out there, but... Uh, let's say fewer than five and a hundred, if that gives you a hint. Yeah. But like, I. But it's understandable, though, right? I, I, and I maybe I should I should uh, go back and qualify why I think it's so low. Um, I, I think there are there are typically small groups within an organization. I say maybe twenty percent of organizations. There's a a leader who has has thought through what they want to accomplish, the, where they want to take the business. They've communicated that to a few trusted lieutenants that that they have uh, confidence in their operational ability, and they put some numbers to it, and and maybe even these trusted lieutenants uh, are on some kind of performance comp basis that incentivizes them to accomplish what the the leader has has laid out, and I think maybe maybe twenty percent would fit that category. Uh, in a business that has 20 employees, a fairly small business, there might be three of those people. In a business of 100 employees, there might only be four or five of those people. Like that, that, that number doesn't change much. You're like three to five, six people who might be in that group. 
my interest is in uh, in what we would like, you know, the, the world that we try to envision with our clients, which is, it sometimes feels like a unicorn, is there are 200 employees. There are 190 of them that know exactly what's going on. And the 10 that don't were hired before the last quarterly meeting, and we haven't had a chance to fully onboard them into the... 190 out of 200 know what's going on. That would be my... I, again, like maybe it's a unicorn, but that's... Here's the thing. That would be so. I think that the I think that the mix would probably be stronger in smaller organizations than it would be in larger, right? Sure. I mean, because I think a lot of this stuff gets lost at mid 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 level management. They just don't right. they don't task um, ground level employees, mm-hmm. right? The real producers in these businesses they they don't task them with with trackable KPIs. Mm-hmm. And it has to extend all the way through the organization exactly. in order to get to, to roll it up to the performance goal you, right. you hope to accomplish at year end. And that's the person that I feel like I want to fight for the most. Because oh, yeah. the controller, the controller, the CFO, like they can go get the information. They can look up the metrics. They can look at how their achievement of whatever goals they've laid out contributed. The sales mm-hmm. manager probably can too. The sales manager can go bug the CFO or the controller for the numbers, the production manager can, like that middle management layer, if you get top flight people, like they're going to go get the information. And in the absence of goals, they're probably going to set their own or they're going to move on. And so I have zero sympathy for that middle layer who's not motivated to go get the numbers. Like we need, we need to find somebody who is motivated, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about Everybody from the young person who's starting off in their first job and is learning what this what is business all about it, from the from the factory floor level or from the warehouse or from the driving a truck around on a route, um, man, like I feel like business owners have this responsibility to steward that person and like give them some. We talked about feedback this week, but like mm-hmm. give them the feedback, not. Not the, hey, I need to give you some feedback, like all the ways you screwed up, but right. like, here's what your route's <clears throat> producing. Here's what, your, here's what your accessory sales were this last week. Here's, and like, not great job, not do better, but like, like at a baseline, just like, here's the number. Yeah. yeah. And we talked, Devin and I were talking about, you know, imagine going to, uh, you know, if you like golf, you go to a driving range, you hit the ball, your feedback is, where did the damn ball go? Mm-hmm. Right. Imagine taking all that away and you're just hitting balls into a net and you have zero indication. I mean, a little bit of feel and, well, that one felt better than the last one, but no feedback whatsoever. And I feel like small businesses everywhere are asking employees to just go hit balls into a freaking wall and, you know, hit your hundred balls and then go home. Here's a paycheck. Yeah. And yeah. we owe them more than that. Uh, I love what you're saying. I really do. Because I think that, you know, that that's where there could be tremendous upside in terms of production, real value creation for businesses by enlisting and engaging that aspect of the workforce. You know, I mean, I don't think there's a, I think that young or old individuals that are on the front line of actually being the producers in these businesses would derive tremendous satisfaction from clarity, mm-hmm. knowing what's expected of them, right? And then knowing and, and deriving satisfaction from the performance against those expectations, mm-hmm. right? Like giving them a set of activities and expected outcomes and tasking them with that. It doesn't have to be, 
it doesn't have to be, uh, 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 and all too often I think that it is, it's, it's a measurement that's used to punish people and to weed out right. underperformers instead right. of recognizing that, that, that everyone could play an important role in the business and to provide them with sort of the guardrails that, that not necessarily ensures but improves the likelihood that they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Because if they're successful, your business is going to be better off and you're going to have a more satisfied employee that will continue to work with you and you'll have less churn and there's all kinds of sort of inherent and extended benefits from people deriving satisfaction from the work they're doing. And I think it starts with understanding what's expected of them and giving them some very clear goals to perform against. So how do we do that? That's a great question. How <laughs> much more time do you so, have? So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I really, th- I really think that everything comes down to a set of KPIs, right? I mean, I think that you could have KPIs for the clerk that's cashing out transactions at the front door, um, you know, of a retail operation. I think that it, it all starts from, you know, what the strategy, the set of objectives, the set of measurable sort of performance outputs from those activities, and I think that flows all the way throughout the organization. And, and so you, you, how you solve that, I think, is with, with um, real clarity about, about what you're trying to accomplish and what's required of each and every person on your team to do that. Uh, a set of, of metrics that can be used to, to track and manage, right, the, the output from those individuals. And then, and then the regular sort of engagement around performance or the outcomes on our regular sort of cadence, right? It's monthly, weekly, daily, you know, whatever it is yeah. as, as, as sort of you begin to roll out new operating discipline. Yeah, I'd like you to talk about cadence for a second because uh, the, we, we talk about the planning world, which is like the whiteboard behind you. You know, like we love whiteboards. You know, I've never seen a whiteboard I didn't want to write on. Uh, but that's the fun part. Right, like the planning part, the blue sky, the set, set the goals, figure out the objectives. What are KPIs are going to tell us whether we're going to get there or not? Can we get more leading versus more, you know, less lagging ones? And uh, and then, like we go to work, and it doesn't just all magically happen. And I think the cadence is a big part of that. I'm interested to hear your experience with either changing a cadence or implementing a cadence or being responsible for running a cadence like talk about that and the role that plays in in execution yeah so so really what you're talking about is is sort of repetition right the frequency of of you know of the frequency of engagement around business performance Mm -hmm. and and you know the way that i sort of is I sort of, and I haven't thought that deeply about it, so you're forcing me to sort of reflect on my career right now. <laughs> but as I think about that, you know, e- even, even the, grand, the grand strategy, the grand strategic plan for growing the business, let's say modestly, 10 to 15% a year, has a set of assumptions about that, some of which are known and then some of which aren't, right? And if you have a set of assumptions that, uh, and initiatives that, that, that that are unknown to you in your plan, then you probably have the wrong plan, right? There there should be always a set of sort of hypothesis around how the business will operate and what you have to do in order to fuel and ignite that that performance. And so, I generally look at at strategy and and the cadence around KPI management and tracking as a series of experiments, right? And that you have to recognize that. In this strategic plan, there are some 
experiments that we're running, right? Some validation mm-hmm. tests that are taking place. And that requires fairly regular um, dialogue, right? To, and, and feedback because, you know, and it's just my nature is small, short sprints around certain assumptions and hypotheses about how you're, gonna, how you're going to generate or ignite new growth stimulate new growth and and then and then the the iteration of those those plans and those initiatives over time as you have validated learning right and i think all too often small business owners in particular less so with big businesses because i think that they've they they do have sort of this operational rigor that Mm -hmm. goes all the way through the organization but i think with small business owners sometimes it's this muscle memory you know, it's like, all right, so how much are we going to grow this year? Uh, 10, 15%, and there it is. The numbers go up. Everything sort of is, you know, flows down from what that objective is without understanding, you know, what behaviors have to change mm-hmm. in order to get there and what's possible beyond the 10 to 15%. So it's really not a deep dive. It's sort of like just a renewal of a plan that's worked before, but a different sort of growth assumption about, about you know, how big or how fast they want to they grow the business. Yeah. So there's there's... It, 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 that, that type of approach, I think, is, is a stalled business, in my estimation. If you're just simply renewing your annual plan, and they really, it's more, it's not even a strategy or a strategic plan. It's usually just a budget, right? Mm-hmm. What's the budget for sales? What's the budget for production? And off you go. And you're getting a little bit more this year. You're getting a little bit less. And find a way to make it work. Well, that's hardly a strategic plan. And right. there's all sorts of ways that that could fail. And, and, and the, 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 the probability of failure go up in magnitude when the cadence of dialogue around that is extends you know beyond sort of monthly or quarterly yeah so i think there are different aspects of the business that require you know biannual or annual reviews there's aspects of the business that require quarterly reviews and so on and so forth monthly daily and weekly and then I don't think the daily is necessary, but yeah. you know, certainly with in the sales front, if you're if you're experimenting with new approaches, new tools, new markets, then you know there's a regular sort of, at the very least, uh, uh, you know, a monthly engagement with your sales team to make sure that everyone's tracking. Yeah, we've gotten uh, pretty, I guess, regimented. Uh, like we drive it down to weekly. Oh, that's great. Um, and but there's like a, there's a weekly agenda, there's a monthly agenda, there's a quarterly agenda, there's an annual agenda, and so uh, and the way we try to to convince clients to sign on with this because a lot of them are like, oh my god, like we're gonna have to meet weekly we, on we this, meet, like, yes. and there's a scorecard we have to keep weekly on this, and yeah. it's like, well, uh, so let's think about you know competitor X Y Z that you're always talking about, and you know. If he's executing 52 times a year and you're executing 12, who do you think is going to come out having the better year? That's you brilliant. Know? And so I, I think it does take uh, some effort. We talk, I talk about pig-headed persistence. You know, like if I'm willing to bash my head into that wall one more time than you are, then I will win, you know, the day in yes. terms of whatever change we're trying. And I think you have to um, set the expectation for the leaders you know, this is not going to be easy. I like what you said about sprints because uh, it reminds me of something that we've tried to run into or we've ran into before, which is like some new initiative and it doesn't go well, right? And we kind of knew it wasn't going to go well, but everybody else thought that, well, you know, this new thing, this is great. This is going to change the world, and at least as we know it. And then it was harder to get the software implemented or 
the marketing didn't come off the way they wanted it to the first time, the new sales pitch didn't have the success rate they anticipated, and then they kind of go back to the old way of, of doing things. Mm-hmm. And we start, I like the sprint, I think we're going to steal that idea and, and talk more about sprints with clients on new initiatives, but we, we've also talked in the past about beta testing. Like, this is the beta test period. Like yeah. when you launch software, you have alpha test, you have beta test. Alpha test, you know, we're gonna we're gonna clean all the crap up before we ever put a customer in front of it. But when we start running out to customers with this, or and customers could be the production staff, you know, if we're talking about changing something that affects them. Before we get to them, we're gonna work, work out as many wrinkles as we can. But then I have a beta test, which means we're gonna all circle back in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. I'm like, what what all broke? You know, mm-hmm. what are all the things that didn't go well? Remember, we told you guys it was all going to break. We told you it was going to be a crap show, yeah. right? And guess what? That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's amazing to me how changing the expectation is a huge part of not hitting the brick wall. Oh, yeah. So. And- Go ahead. No, no, you first. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I didn't want to get too far away from the sprints idea too, because I, I love it. Because not only are you talking about something that is an intense amount of energy, right? And if you look at the hundred meter sprint, it's it's a it's a lot of energy these guys are putting out in a very short distance. But you you have to be agile. You can't you can't just go strong and fast. You have to be agile because you have to get up to speed as quick as you you know can to run the race fast sure so going in your experience what is what is sort of the key to getting individuals in an organization to sprint but not derailing them from the overall plan and the overall picture sure yeah so it's the it's the reformatting i'll call it reformatting it's essentially changing the meetings the focus point of the meetings from being a review of outcomes right, which is largely performance measurement that could either flatter or embarrass someone in that meeting, to a discussion of learning, right? So here's a sprint, period of time in which we're going to test some hypothesis about our business, our ability to acquire a customer, our ability to generate leads, our ability to onboard customers, our ability to improve retention rates, whatever it might be. You break it down into a small kind of sprint or project, and rather than talking about the outcome as a performance measurement, it's particularly a performance measurement that drives you know earnings, right? Individual personal income. Uh, you turn it into lessons learned. So a discussion of what do we learn from this exercise? Less about whether we were successful or not, but what did we t- what's the takeaway? And the takeaway, you know, when, when, you, when you recast those meetings as, as a workshop and not like a performance review, which these KPI weekly or even monthly KPI meetings often are, it, you, you change the disposition of the participants in that meeting because everyone walks away with newfound knowledge and anyone can contribute to that knowledge just by virtue of paying attention and, and replaying what they think they learned from, you know, whatever role they might have played in that experiment. Yeah, you know, that's so key because without that, I think about, and this analogy falls apart somewhere, but I think about the sprinter who doesn't see the finish line, right? After a while, he's going to run and he's going to start to get exhausted and burn oh, out. Yeah. And so often in our teams, we see, we see maybe a business owner come to us and the, in the assessment, it's, yeah, you know, we just like, it's always a new thing. It's always a new thing. And they're exhausted. They're worn out. 
And that's because there's never a process, a cadence of, hey, after the sprint, it's going to be 90 days, it's going to be six months, or it's going to be a month. We're going we're gonna to stop, we're going to evaluate, and we're going to learn so that they understand the difference between the larger race and the sprint, the focus for that given oh, period of time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's key. I think, that the, I think that pacing, the cadence issue, right? Pacing those meetings builds endurance, right? So if you've got to go 12 months, you've got to go 12 months, you don't establish the 12-month goal and not touch base any, anywhere between 1 and 12 right. or even 1 and 4, right? I mean, if you, if, you, if you can condition your teams to have more frequent discussions around the the activities that are going to drive the results you're looking for short term and long term it becomes a lot you can become a condition to it right and you build leg strength mm-hmm. right and you find that that end game of you know 20 25% growth becomes more doable right and because you've met frequently and you're changed the nature of those conversations to learnings instead of outputs there's generally fewer surprises at year end in terms of how you're performing against that ultimate goal, right? Mm-hmm. So I've just found that, the, you know, that, that repurposing those meetings um, and building those meetings around um, experiments that you hope to learn from have really sort of helped the endurance of, of, you know, of, of the team throughout the engagement. I want to shift gears for a second sure. uh, because you've done both. And when I say both, like you you live in the same consulting world that we live in, um, but you also have kind of been handed the keys, you know, in, in prior roles. And it's like, John, this is where I want the company to go. And mm-hmm. it's like, make it happen. And you're vested with all the authority and responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of compare and contrast with us the challenges in both? You know, one of, one of the things that, Devin and I have said before and will continue to say I think is like we always run the danger of caring too much caring more about the client's business than they do Um, because we don't have the authority we don't have the responsibility to drive the change or drive the growth or accomplish the vision and if if our motivation is greater than theirs then we're going to get awfully frustrated and potentially burned out um there are, there are times when we wish we had the keys, <laughs> but there are also times when we're glad that we don't because at the end of the day, uh, we put forward our best effort, um, but we get to do that with you know, a dozen different clients instead of having one that sure. we go to bed thinking about and wake up thinking about. Yeah. So what's, the, what's been the difference in, in those two scenarios and what are some of the challenges and rewards respectively? Yeah, I don't know that I've ever felt like I've owned anything other than the business I'm in today because it's mine. Right. And, right. and and I'm solely responsible for it. But even in roles as a co-founder of an Internet startup or CEO of a 40 year old company, at the end of the day, I'm not I don't own it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm accountable for it for sure. Uh, but the owners are the guys that, you know, that put the money in the in the business. So those are the investors, whether it be private equity or angel. And at the end of the day, it's it's really sort of just ensuring that that they're pleased with the with the outcome. And almost all of those situations, and this may be a little bit different than the game you're in now, I don't know, but nearly all of the assignments I've been engaged in have been with the expectation that, that, that my role is one of value creation, right? I'm supposed to be building enterprise value, and, and I'm building enterprise value for these organizations with the expectation that there's, a, there's an outcome. 
and the outcome is largely an exit event, whether it be a strategic, whether it be a new round of money, whether it be a public offering, whatever it might be. Right. So it's always with sort of the, the eye towards the prize of, of an exit, which, which may be different. You know, you, if you're dealing with family businesses, there's sort of legacies, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's pass-through, um, you know, considerations. And so you may be working with a completely different set of sort of requirements than, than I might have experienced there. Yeah. So it, it's it's hard for me to compare and contrast that. Sure. When it comes to uh, your role advising businesses, yeah. um, where do you find the the leverage to drive behavior change? And what are some of the most effective ways you've found to work with businesses, business owners, or business managers as a consultant to to drive behavior change? Because we can. A lot of times we can see the problem that needs to be solved. We can maybe even see the solution, but it's going to require people to change the way they've done things. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really difficult, difficult assignment. It's, um, in fact, uh, you know, it, it, as, an, as, a, as a hired consultant, it's extremely difficult to transform an organization from the outside in, right? Because the... Ideas, the plans, the initiatives don't have as much teeth because you don't you're not perceived by by the employees as having enough skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So in many of the assignments that I've taken on, with the exception of the few that I'm engaged with right now, it's been as a as a full time W two CEO, not as a ten ninety nine consultant. Mm-hmm. And it's because many of the assignments I've taken on required cultural transformation in order to achieve the objectives. Right. So I, I just haven't had the, you know, as a as a 1099 working for a client, it's very difficult to you get it at the high levels. You get it with the CEO and the owner. You get it with the investors. You might even get it with the executive team. Mm-hmm. But so much of a company's ability to achieve those goals is reliant on all the employees beneath that middle level. Right. That are actually doing the work every single day. Mm-hmm. And and so I I have my own personal experience has been is that when when I'm I'm a lot more successful in a shorter per- period of time in impacting positively impacting change and transformation when I'm engaged as a W two and the new sort of CEO that's running the organization because it comes with it the belief that you get skin in the game. Sure. So when you say cultural transformation. What are some of the what are some of the tools that you've found to be effective as the W two CEO in achieving cultural transformation? Uh, yeah, so a lot of it we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have found that one of the most successful tactics for uh, there's two things. Um, one of the most successful tactile, tactics I've used is empowerment, is giving people the ability to drive substantial impact or change in the business and, 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 and giving them room to fail, frankly, you know, allowing them the, 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 the opportunity to learn from, because not everything goes well, right? <laughs> in fact, it, more often than not, it doesn't go well. Sure. Uh, and, and, and you could let those failures completely consume you or you could learn from them and you could use them as an exercise to figure out what to do going forward. So, so cultural transformation starts with, with empowering people to have an impact in the business and to have ownership of the business. But, but, but only after um, 
there's a sense of clarity, right, in terms of what that expectation is. So it starts with the plan. What is the plan? How are we planning on getting there? What resources are required to get there? What role do you play? And what measurements will we use to ensure that you're producing to the expectations that we have? So when someone is empowered and they have ownership, good things happen. You know, generally speaking, good things happen. And, and, and the, frankly, the weak players, the Bs and Cs that are just along for the ride, they bail, right? They'll just burn out. They just don't have the leg strength to take it. They don't want the responsibility. They don't want the accountability. They just don't want anyone to be paying attention, mm-hmm. right, to what they're doing day to day because life is good. And, and, and frankly, no business is good with the ones that are just freeloading and coasting. Yeah. So I think that, you know, th- that is one way of weeding out the people who really aren't, you know, they're not on the bus. Yeah. And, and that, that in and of itself is, you know, a big move towards, trans- uh, you know, cultural transformation is just getting the right people in the right seats so you said empower you said empowerment is one of the things what else is is it is it empowerment with the accountability of hey we're going to give you the opportunity to own this and take responsibility but we're also going to come alongside you and make sure that you're you're actually accomplishing the thing that you raised your hand and said yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to take on that responsibility or is it empowerment and something else to, no, I, to I really think, drive cultural change. No, I think I think you're hitting on it. I think it's empowerment, but also empowerment with I'll call it a safety net, but I'm really cautious when I use that because mm-hmm. it's it's as I mentioned earlier, it's 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 allowing someone new to accountability, right? The opportunity to fail and and letting them know that it's okay, you know, that 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 we're not going to hit all these, but we're going to pay attention to to what we're learning through the process and and generally good things will come of that. So empowerment it really is is giving people the opportunity to have impact and to make contribution, letting them know that it's okay uh, not to be perfect in their execution of their tasks and it's providing a supportive a supportive environment where where there's there's sort of collab there's collaboration with with the employees sort of success as as sort of the ultimate goal it's interesting you you talked about the bnc players tend to opt out and we've seen that to be the case we pretty sure it's still 100 percent, but we've we've tell we've told new clients for for years and years um, a year from now the leadership team table will look different than it does now and it's not be it's not going to be because you fire anybody it's not going to be because we tell you that you have to fire anybody it's because somebody at that leadership team table won't be here a year from now they can't take the heat in the kitchen yeah and, yeah. It, and it's happened it happens every time yeah. what's what's interesting to me mm-hmm. uh is that as you were speaking i was thinking about you know in terms of cultural transformation a lot of it is removing what i would call the toxic elements of, of the team right so mm-hmm. like so you get rid of the toxic people, and to enemy toxic like they're backbiting and they're gossiping. They're just they're, they're just status quo folks that don't want to change anything, or or they could just they could literally be toxic. We've run into that too. But what's interesting is you have a, a leadership team of let's say five people, and one of those five people winds up leaving the team within the first year, and it always happens that the day after this person gives notice. The business owner calls us and says, so-and-so, you know, left yesterday. It was her last day. And, man, I got to tell you, this morning I was driving to work and the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and, you know, just the culture is so much better. I'm like, it's been eight and a half hours. Like, how did it get so much better? But 
what what's crazy is that new leadership team of four people or maybe four plus one if they hire somebody to replace them goes on to achieve amazing results you're like well the same four people have been there for the last 10 years uh it's kind of a testament to how much these toxic elements these b and c players really just impede any kind of progress whatsoever oh they could drag on performance in a big way yeah you know i found what's interesting in what you just said was that um so that person checks out and the CEO now has a full day without them. And there's joy and jubilation in the staff, right? So, A, that suggests that they knew it was time anyhow, right? And you're usually, as a CEO, the last to know that, even though you'd like to think that you should be the first. <laughs> you're usually the last. It's obvious to everyone else that that person was checked out, but you didn't see it. And the other amazing thing is that they generally have big areas of responsibility, big roles that you would think cause hiccups in your business when they vacate. Yet miraculously, hmm. the business doesn't go down, mm-hmm. right? It's because they really weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were just doing a great job of, of cloaking it in right. some way, right? And you've got, uh, or other people have really just been sort of supporting that, that weak link by doing their job because they realized it made their job a little bit easier even though they were working harder, right? right? It, it was a better reflection on them. So. It's amazing, yeah. So when, when, when C-level people, B and C-level people leave an organization, even though at first it seems traumatic, it usually results in, you know, sort of, uh, uh, yeah, just, just a, a, level of, a level of productivity and a level of positivity that you, you hadn't anticipated. Mm-hmm. So yeah. go ahead. Can, I, can I shift to shift gears for a second? And I know that we're talking, we started off by talking about scaling, and I just want to kind of hear about some of your experience in marketing and how specifically when you go into an organization where you, you're focusing on scaling and it seems that marketing seems to be the, the problem area. What are some, like, typically where are businesses missing it in the marketing? I know we talked a little bit about understanding the customer, understanding the market for entering new markets and startups, but when you go in and you, you kind of have that turnaround opportunity with an organization that marketing is the problem where what are some of the blind spots where, where where are they missing it most of the time in your experience and what does the process look like um to maybe after evaluating their initial market making sure that they're in the right place what are some other areas that you focus on specifically to drive change and, and maybe help uh help grow the marketing help help provide the structures so that they can begin to scale yeah, that is a that's a big question, uh, and, I, and I I don't think that marketing is necessarily always a problem, but there's always areas of opportunity and improvement in marketing, and um, you know I think that it's it might start first by with with looking at the use of digital in the marketing plan, right, and and customers now. Practically all of them understand they have to have they have to invest in digital in some form. It starts with a website and email campaigns and all that good stuff. So the problem with many businesses is when they decide to go digital, they 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 fall victim to the sh- to the you know to the shiny objects, right? And in today's world, that's content publishing, right? And and that's that's both an opportunity and a problem. And and the problem aspect of it is that is that companies that decide to embrace digital and specifically 
buy into this notion of content publishing generally perform, and much to my surprise, random acts of custom publishing <laughs> just for the purpose of pushing stuff out. So, so they, they have it in their mind that just producing a lot of content helps their business. And, and you can imagine the cumulative effect of a lot of small businesses that believe that. And you've got the market is just flooded now with content. And it's gotten so bad that you can't discern ads from content and you can't discern good content from bad content or genuine content from copycat content. Right. It's become so noisy and so crowded that it's, 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 it's suppressing the performance of digital across the board right now because it's just so cluttered. And so, you know, the, the marketing practices, I believe, that, that can have the greatest impact on a business are the ones that are thoughtful of the customers they serve and are very specific in, in getting customers to think about the problems that they're tasked with solving as a buyer of a product or service and offering, you know, content that, that encourages, you know, that provides a different, a different perspective or unique insight or a bold new idea. Content that, that, um, that engages the client in a dialogue and gets them to sort of think about and then to discover, right, new, new pathways to solving a problem that they're wrestling with on a day-to-day basis. That's a big, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a big investment in time. Um, it's a philosophical sort of shift in the way that you think about marketing as opposed to today. There's a lot of content publishing out there that, that in email marketing that lands you on a landing page that, that is nothing more than a slippery slope conversion funnel that, is, is that, <laughs> that, like that. that, that, that <laughs> manufactures intent, right. right? And it's not at all real, all right? right? And, and, so, and that's largely because, you know, it, it, just think about clickbait. And, and I'm, I'm victim of clickbait, right? You go online and there's so much intelligence now and machine learning that's taking place that, you know, one or two clicks and some engine out there has got to read on what your profile is and will begin to serve information to you that they think is relevant. Well, the first time they serve that information to you, it's not going to be on. It's going to be close because they've got a wide filter. And the more information they send you and the more interaction you have with it, the more narrow they get around your... But you can imagine, like, just getting inundated. All you got to do is visit, like, a shopping site, and all of a sudden you are, like, cookied. Mm-hmm. And then you are targeted with all kinds of um, uh, marketing material. And, and it's, it's a caustic, right? I mean, it really is. And... and, and but there are a lot of people, there, there's a lot of good clickbait out there that, that entraps us, right? Uh, and that just leads to further sort of, you know, data collection and more targeting. And it's just a vicious cycle. So, you know, I'm a strong advocate for, for using digital in a very authentic and very sort of um, uh, unique way to engage your uh, very specific audience around the problems they're trying to solve. Most most businesses spend way too much time talking about themselves and not talking about the customers and the work that they have to do every day. How do you, how do, you do that in a market that is so dense with content? I, I think that some of, 
I, I don't know, the way I see it, some of the challenge then is you have companies that are pushing out keyword after keyword after keyword and blog posts that, or, or white papers that it's totally irrelevant to the business, right? It's content for the sake of content, but then they're getting the SEO, they're getting the, they're getting the optimization from the search engines so that people are still flooding their site. And I feel like the guys who are trying to do it this way, mm-hmm. the companies that are trying to push out relevant content to their, their customers that kind of positions them as the ideal player to meet that need and help the customer solve their problem are, so, you know, the guys that are doing it right are getting flooded, you know, drowned out by all of the noise. So is that true? Is that, is that a myth? What, what is your take on that? Yeah. So, so the impetus behind content publishing is largely being seen, right? It's, it's sort of the, we, we live in this attention economy mm-hmm. and then the way that you break through the attention economy is you put a lot of content out there that's stuffed with all the keywords that you think the spiders and search engines are queuing on and you hope to get on the first page of search results. Um, so, so that tactic does in fact generate traffic, right? That's been proven to generate traffic for businesses, but it doesn't do much for engagement. You know, engage, and your customers have gotten very smart. I mean, they, they, you know, Joey and I talked about this, our personal sort of interest in fishing or boating or anything. I mean, I took on some, you know, some finish work. I did an accent wall in my home recently and never did one before in my life, right? And, and, and blew a 20-foot wall, right? So this is like my mistakes are going to be obvious if I don't do this well. Uh, and, and so it's just, I just consumed as much video as I can from people who I perceive and learn to understand were experts in their field. And, and it, it, it requires diligence, you know, on behalf of the consumer business or, or, or you know, general, general consumers, um, a level of discipline and, and um, discretion to, to sort of dis- discernment, right, to identify content that is relevant. And when content is, when it's relevant, you know it, right, because it's resonating with you and you're engaged in it and you're really sort of inspired by it perhaps and it's solving a specific problem or it speaks to you in some way. Um, and, and, then, and then, you know, over time, you know, that, that's where you tend to migrate, right, is to those publishers. And I have a lot of people that I'm following now on, on YouTube. I've subscribed to their channels because they've, they, their content resonates with me. And I'm filtering everything else out. So consumers are smart enough to, to know how to, the best consumers, the most informed consumers, who I happen to think are the best customers, right? The more informed they are about the product and about your company and about sort of how you compare and, um, and the experiences that other customers have had are the better customers in my estimation, mm-hmm. right? So as a business, I think that we, collectively, we have to get um, um, more clear on who we want to serve and, and not be tempted to serve everyone, right? That seems to be a pretty hard sell to a small business owner. You no related doubt. to riches in the niches. Like, how do you get them to turn the corner and get kind of ridiculously focused on a, a very targeted segment of the customer base? Uh, that's uh, <laughs> so, so assuming they've got a broad sort of customer base that they serve now, how do you get them to narrow down? Yeah, is there a, I mean, I wish there were a magic pill that we could give them and they would just buy, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and be like, yes, I know I need to get targeted and I need to, you know, I, I think of, of something as as simple as like pest control, right? Mm-hmm. So we've had pest control clients in the past and be like, well, you know, you market to homeowners, right? But it's becoming an increasingly crowded field 
And, you know, I wonder if you could convince a, pest, a startup, let's say you've got a brand-new pest control company. They don't have a large enough percentage of market share to worry about losing anything if they get targeted. But you said you're going to be the pest control company for blank customer, mm-hmm. type of customer, you know, is, is that mobile home customer, is that customer with a house over 5,000 square feet, is that, you know, customer uh, on a coastal setting, is it, you know, like, is it um, 65 plus customers, you know, like, you know, how do you get somebody to buy into the idea that, look, there's more than enough business out there. And the more, because, you know, you've seen it and you read about it all the time, Mm -hmm. the more focused your marketing message, the cheaper it is to get out there because you're not competing, you know, you're not trying to shout the loudest, right? Right. Um, The the higher the conversion rate because it's more relevant when it is heard. You know, there's just so many benefits to it. The better, stronger the retention rate and renewal rate when you do it right. Yes. But we've got businesses, you know, that, you know, they're the equivalent of, you know, American, German, Italian, French cuisine, you know, we'll do it all. We'll make any, you want to, you, you want flan, we'll make you flan. Yeah. You want a crepe, we'll make you a crepe. You need a taco, we'll make you a taco. And it's like, what? nobody wants to buy from the person who can do everything. Yeah, so maybe it does start with, again, coming back to customers, and I sound like a broken record, but I'm hugely customer-centric, right? So it's, it's, it's talking to what you perceive to be your very best customers today and understanding them intimately, right? And then, and then using that customer as sort of a, a look-alike um, template, right? You want to find other organ individuals or businesses, depending on whether you're selling to consumers or businesses. You want to find other customers that look like your ideal customer profile. And to your point about, um, to your example of the pesticide company, so it may not be, they may not benefit from targeting companies uh, or individuals based on um, home setting, right? It may be on other consumer sort of behaviors, right? So they may be better served, um, and I'm just kind of winging this now, but they may be better served finding customers that, that have a particular interest in environmental issues. They may find that they have, uh, that their, their value proposition resonates more deeply with customers who, who are vegan or all natural, right? And so, and there are ways that you could listen online Right and target online through through various sort of social networks to find those people who have behaviors or interests that are adjacent to your core competence. Hmm. Right? That's interesting. I like the idea of adjacency versus like causality because I'm thinking Correct. of like more more of a direct causal, and you're saying no, no, no like resonation can be adjacent to, Correct. not necessarily in line, you know, linear fashion with. Yes. Yeah, so you find other signals to, to read, right? And then you market to the signals. Hi, this is Devin Dash at Axiom Strategic. And we just want to take a moment to, to break in our episode. And first of all, just thank you for listening. And the second thing we want to inform you of is a special series that we're going to be doing where we want to answer your burning questions. If you're a business owner or you're a professional working for a business, and you have a burning question um, that we can put our minds to and, and maybe help you you know, think strategically about, do not hesitate to, to reach out to us. We're going to be putting together a string of episodes where we're going to be answering your questions. You can email us your questions at podcast at axiomstrategic.com or you can visit our website axiomstrategic.com, visit our podcast page, 
And there will be a form that you can fill out and get us your questions that way. I want to thank you again for listening. And now back to the episode. That's that's pretty deep. That's good. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I like, you know, and I, I, I like that for for anyone who's listening. You know, it's just that idea of we we get in a rut of, well, most of our customers look like this and they have these explicit characteristics and therefore that's, that's probably why they bought from us and that's what we market towards anyway. But seeing the other kind of tangential interests that they, they have as customers as a, a, another opportunity to go and capture more of the market. Um, or if you're a new business looking at these other things like unrelated, maybe, maybe nonlinear, uh, items that would result in them buying from you. I think that's really good and practical and hopefully it gives our listeners a, a really a different way of looking at their, their current strategy. Well, lo- looking at adjacencies can help you to identify and then exploit new market opportunities, but it also helps to better inform your messaging and what you say to those, those customers or prospects, right? So either way, your businesses are going to grow as a result of it, but you've, you've done it in a in a very non-conventional manner. Yeah, I had a foray into online courses a couple years ago where we were teaching uh, other CPAs how to do consulting work. And uh, one, of, one of the pieces of advice I got from somebody who was very successful doing online uh, sales was, you know, go out and have 100 conversations and write down exactly the words, you know, with prospects, mm-hmm. you know, and write down exactly the words that they're using to describe whatever problem, you know, you might be fixing or what frustration they're willing to share with you that, that they're hoping that you might help them overcome. And, uh, and you know, if they're willing to give you a credit card number for the day you go live, that's great. Like that's a bonus, but what you're looking for are those words. And he was really trying to instill in me before you set up any kind of marketing message or email campaign or landing page in this online space, you have to be using the language that people are going to be listening to. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I think you, you said the online world has become incredible. The digital marketing space is incredibly sophisticated. It would be interesting to see some of that same sophistication brought to the more traditional, you know, sales and marketing uh, paths that we see among small businesses where they're literally, you know, giving sales presentations in living rooms, mm-hmm. you know, or calling customers to follow up on leads. And I, we don't see that same level of sophistication. I mean, maybe for lots of reasons. I mean, you, you've got some very smart people sitting behind computers that are getting paid very well to design landing pages that convert because oh, yeah. they can do that, yeah. you know, in mass. Yes. Um, the slippery slopes. But there's there's definitely a path here to up the game for traditional marketing and sales that that revolves around those adjacencies. Really, I mean, how, if you were to ask the go back to their previous question, you know, of a hundred businesses, you know, how many are all on the same page? I wonder of a hundred small businesses, how many of them have a very succinct, concise, clear definition of who their customer is, who their target customer is. I mean, do you find that to be the case or is it just it's just kind of evolved over what's generated sales over time? You know, that person. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm in an engagement right now with a company that is, I'd say, very successful, small business, software company, five to ten million with strong sort of recurring uh, renewals. Right. Uh, renewal rates among the customers. And. Um, 
And they've had, and it wasn't until it wasn't until a few well-funded startups came onto the scene that they began to realize that they were losing opportunities to competitors, largely because they didn't understand who their customer was. So they 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 know the the mar- that they know the logos they serve today, but what they didn't understand is all the various influencers that touched the decision to buy their product, and the motivations and reasons why they they supported it. And so, you know, we were engaged in, in a, um, an analysis of, of really trying to understand buyer personas. Are you familiar with that term? Mm-hmm. J- just, you know, who that buyer is, wh- what they're sort of, what are the jobs they have to perform every day? How does your product either influence or impact that, their performance of their job? Um, what are their motivations? What are their dispositions? What does that buyer journey look like? And then after you have all that information to help them, develop a sales message, if you will, a value proposition that resonates with that group. And so, you know, the, the, the I sort of lost my train of thought on that. Um, so, so, yeah. You said that you knew that, lo- <laughs> that you knew that they knew who the logos were, but they didn't, under- they didn't completely the understand the customer. So, so the they customers. kept marketing themselves in the, in the way that they had traditionally. And it was really uh, sort of a, it's, it's a bit of a gunshot approach. And, and, you know, they adopted digital and began doing the things that you do when you first adopt digital. And, and that's still too broad, right? So they're out there with a message and worse still, is they had four or five different messages. So depending on whether you went onto their LinkedIn sort of um, homepage and saw the About Us or their website and saw the About Us or their digital ads and how they position their value add, every single one of those marketing assets spoke differently. And it wasn't because they were targeting a different customer. They were just unclear as to why customers were buying their product and how they can communicate the value to customers. I wonder, um, specifically with digital, uh, but probably the traditional areas too, when you talk about understanding who your customer is and, and uh, getting targeted and making sure that you're not just part of the cacophony of voices, like most small business owners, like they have no idea how to do that. You know, like you, you talk about, well, you could do LinkedIn or you could do Facebook, you could do YouTube or you could do email campaigns. And they're like, yes. Like, like, how do we do that? Uh, So they're going to hire somebody, right? And this is a space that's kind of frustrating to me. Um, And and if you're listening to this and you're a digital marketing agency, we do have a couple of good ones that we've come to know lately that I don't think fit this mold. But it tends to be a black box. And it's like, yes, we will will spend your digital advertising budget for you. And it's going to be a black box, and you're not going to know how uh how we arrived at the decisions to spend it where we decided to spend it at the times we decided to spend it in the in the channels that we decided to spend it but at the end of the day we're going to be able to produce a nice report that shows you how we've been successful right i'm living that today (laughs) okay so so what's your advice for a small business owner that says maybe they're frustrated because they've been using one of these either a national or regional or even a local um, you know, I think a lot of these are just like fall into the SEO farm, uh, you know, SEO optimization group of, of marketing agencies. But they're like, I don't know whether I'm getting value. I certainly don't feel like I have a good understanding of who my customer is. I feel like we're just got the megaphone and we're competing with the guy who's got a budget twice as big as ours. And we're below the fold on Google and he's above. How do we change that? What, what would be your advice? 
Yeah, so I said I was living that, right? So uh, I, I just got off a call today that dealt with that very topic, and I've been engaged in that topic. Does this need to be closer? No, you're fine. Uh, I've been engaged in this conversation now for the better part of six months with a client, which is, you know, they're, they're not, they're a, they're a very traditional business. Um, they, generally speaking, the industry has not embraced digital, even though they, they, they do participate in it. Uh, they do it, you know, because they think that it's 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 a it's the you know it's the table stakes. They need to, they need right. to be there, but they don't know how to use it, and so so um, they they rely on the resources of a corporate entity to sort of decide um, to allocate their digital marketing spend, and they that corporate has enlisted an agency, and the agency performs search you know paid search advertising. And they report every single month that we've got these results for you. And, and, you know, I'm working with my client and the results that are being reported by this agency, we can't validate or, or true up on the back end with the calls that we record uh, and, and the ones that go into our CRM. Like, there is a huge disconnect. The agency will tell you, listen, we're increasing the results like 3x since, you know, month over month. (laughs) And we're saying business hasn't ticked up a bit. You know, what's 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 the problem? And so, you know, I started that engagement um, uh, offering strategic planning and, uh, and and developing a new line of business for them. And it's evolved into sort of more digital marketing. I mean, it wasn't by design. It just happened that that was a problem. We were investing money and we weren't getting ROI from it. And so. I actually asked for the call logs, so let me have the call logs. And I poured through dozens of phone calls that were reportedly generated by this digital advertising. And you, you, I think you'd be surprised to learn that, and we're not sure why, you know, why this is occurring, but 60% of the calls that were being recorded and reported as a lead was from existing customers. Really? They weren't from new, they weren't from new prospects that were responding to a digital ad. And, and, we still, and, and we've now tasked the agency with explaining how 60% of the, call it 300 calls you reported to generate for us this month are from customers we've had for five years. Wow. And I don't know the answer to this yet. Yeah. But it, to your point, it's a black box, right? Yeah. If I hadn't done the analysis, if I hadn't asked for the call, call logs, if I hadn't actually listened to the calls and done my own analysis, the agency, the cl- my client, wouldn't be, well, they would be worse off because they would be continuing to pay a lot of money on a monthly basis and getting very little, if anything, yeah. in value back. But they subscribe to this thought that they're investing in digital and business is okay. Yeah. So digital must be helping my business. Yeah, I think that maybe that speaks to the relative, relative unsophistication of the, pe- of the decision makers who are putting the bills and and maybe that is a, a and, gener- and the sophistication of the marketers that are selling the service <laughs> right, by right. The way. uh we, we uh i mentioned a couple of digital agencies that we've recently been introduced to uh one in st petersburg that's i've i believe is fairly innovative one of the things that they wanted to do was eliminate that black box but they were smart enough to realize if we don't have insight into the calls that are coming in it's very hard for us to make the connection between the marketing efforts and the generation of the call so if we have the front end of the marketing but we don't have connected the back end of the of the crm you don't have attribution so they built the crm 
and so all of their clients use the same CRM, and now they can track end-to-end -end where that originated, and they can point the customer to, hey, the 3x call volume that increase that you're seeing is related to this campaign, and this one over here is a dog, and it's not doing well, so we're going to kill it and replace it with something else. But yes. um, and maybe, that mar maybe that industry is going through that kind of shift where those players who are who are sophisticated in, in terms of convincing customers their results when there really aren't because we've heard the exact same thing from one of our clients like mm -hmm. we we we're being told we we go up there to have a sit down and read them the riot act and they put put in front of us report after report that says we're doing phenomenal. Yeah. And we come back kind of, you know, like wondering, are we making a mistake? Like, do we not understand what's going on? But at the end of the day, we yeah. look at our lead volume and it's not any higher than it was a year ago. Right. So where are the results? So yeah. uh, frustrating for small business owners, but I think, you know, they are at the mercy of the experts, you know, and I guess maybe vet the experts. I mean, do you hire two agencies and have them, you know, split your budget between the two? And Not a bad technique, and actually. see who can prov prove their, their value. Oh, yeah. You know, I've done that before where, you know, even in hiring, you know, right? So, so this is going back a few years now, but I remember giving a, an assignment. I, had, I was looking for 10, 10 new salespeople. We're going to scale. <laughs> uh, so t 10 more salespeople, and I split the business between two recruiting houses and, and said, listen, I've, I've split the business between you and your competitors, and the person who produces is the one that's going to get the balance yeah. of the business. And, and it was an experience like I never had before. It, I felt like I was getting incredible value from both sides. I knew that they were working harder than I've ever had sure. a recruiter work for me before. And, uh, and we were getting really good candidates as opposed to just getting bodies. We were getting real good fits. Yeah. And so I think that's a really good tactic to take is let them know that, listen, we, we've engaged someone else. Right. And they're going to be doing the same thing you're doing. At the end of the day, we're going to go with the one that has demonstrated the ability to drive value. And so, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge, I mean, there's an old expression. I don't know who would attribute this to, but it has to do with marketing. Says, I know half of my marketing works. I don't know which half. Right. <laughs> and that's still a problem today with all the sort of tracking mechanisms that are available on, on, on the Internet through whether it's social or email marketing or landing page. You know, w w everything is trackable. Yet one of the biggest problems in digital marketing right now is attribution tracking so that you know what half of your advertising works, right? And, and, and who you're going to give credit to. Is it, the, you know, is it the, the initial email that went out and resulted in someone signing up for my newsletter that I'm going to attribute? Or is it you know, the, the white paper download and, and the fact that they bought within, you know, within a month of, seeing, of reading that, of downloading that? So yeah. it gets very complicated in terms of attribution tracking, whether you're looking at you know, the, the, the first point of contact or the last point of contact before the transaction takes place. I don't know what the answer is, frankly, um, you know, w without appearing to be self-serving yeah. and suggest that you hire someone who right. knows how to examine that right. stuff. I, I, it's, it's a real problem, and I think that there are a lot of small business owners that are, that are victims to really slick digital marketing agencies that, 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 that just you know, don't perform like they should. Well, I wonder you know, how much of this can be... Uh, there's, a, there's some fine-tuning. I think we're, we may be jumping the gun to like the graduate level of marketing for small business owners when d we've run into situations where, yeah, we're doing radio advertising and we're doing TV advertising and we're doing print and we've got a billboard out there. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, is there a way to track which one? And like, 
Yeah, like they told us about these tracking numbers. Like every every ad has a different number, something like that. Mm-hmm. You're like, have you ever looked at those reports? Well, somebody's got those somewhere, right? So like, yeah. there's a lot of data. I mean, and this is where small business owners just fall prey to the owner operator side of things. Like they are wearing so many different hats. Oh, a yeah. lot of times they are short staffed at the administrative, you know, managerial level, um, and you know that. I, I love what you said going back to KPIs. Like a lot of times the adage, you know, what you measure and pay attention to gets results. You know, how can we, me- can we measure this advertising campaign? Well, a tracking number is better than nothing, right? Yes. And a lot of them aren't even using those. You know, can we, can we give this particular uh, pay-per-click a different URL? Oh, yeah, we've already done that. Okay, where is the report where we can see that? And just... Uh, kind of covering the bases before we jump into, wow, do we need a whole new strategy? Well, let's measure what we're doing right now and try to get a baseline for whether we can even understand what needs to be done next. Yeah. You know, it's a, um, I would imagine in, <clears throat> with the customers that you serve, mostly being family businesses, maybe traditional businesses, mm-hmm. if I'm correct, yep. you know, that, that, that they're talking to customers. Like you don't, you don't have a lot of customers that, that, sell hands-free right there's no interaction with a salesperson usually requires an interaction. pretty much yeah there's there's either a customer service person is, is okay. involved in the transaction or there's a literal salesperson who's signing the deal you know you you could obviously the tracking codes is helpful assuming that you've got someone on your end of the business who understands what the data is and what to do with it right mm-hmm. it's the what to do with it that's really stumps a lot of people I got this data. It says great things, I think, but I'm not sure where to go now. Right. It says that I did this A-B test, and A works better than B, but now what do I do? Does anybody know what A was? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You know, what, what, yeah, exactly. What changed, and, and what was the control, what was the control um, uh, mechanism? Um, but I, I think that in the most simplistic form, it's, it's arming the people who are talking to the customers or are engaging the customers in, in sort of the sale transaction, to, um, to arm them with a set of questions that inquire about how a prospect heard of the organization, and then and then and there's a set of sub questions related to that, and then and then what what where did they get the information, the contact information that they're looking at at that moment when they reached out to me? Mm-hmm. So that could establish both first line and then second line attribution, right? So how did you learn about us? Could speak mm-hmm. to oh, I saw your ad on television. And what are you looking at right now or what prompted you to give us a call is, you know, I'm on your website and I see your phone number. Um, and then you could begin to, you know, so a set of questions that your customer service reps or salespeople have that, that attempt to source the inquiry, right, and attribute that inquiry to some marketing activity. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And I don't know that I've heard anybody distinguish it between the first and second line attribution because, uh, like, we know with our customers that have fleets, you know, and they'll have a hundred vehicles wrapped, you know, and they'll, you know, how'd you hear about us? Oh, your trucks are everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they have five trucks, right? And they're wrapped in there. Your trucks are everywhere. Um, but what caused you to call us now? And probably they didn't see a truck drive by. Yes. And then write the phone number down real quick. Right? Yeah, yeah, usually not. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's a that's a great one. That's definitely one we're going to take. Although to. I don't mind admitting that I, I, I was, you know, so when I'm in market and I happen to be a market for a landscaper, I'm driving around. I see a, a yard that looks beautiful and there's a landscape truck out in front. 
take a picture take of it with my phone, and I go back and I call. Yeah. So in that case, the rap worked. Yeah, right? that's good. That's a good idea. Yeah. So. Well, we, uh, we're coming in on like an hour and a half, and I'd like to pivot a little bit. And, and we, we did this at the beginning, but I'd kind of like to come back to it and talk about John Blake for a second and your current work and, and what you're seeing happen. Well, like when we get, we had some uh, folks in the insurance industry here a few weeks ago, had somebody else in commercial real estate, uh, had some guys in the, in the payroll and benefits. And one of our questions is always like, what's happening in your world right now, your industry, what you see happening in maybe your segment of the economy or your particular market? Uh, and what are some of the trends and what are you having people look out for? So how would you how would you characterize what's happening in John's space right now? So what is my space right now? What is my world? <laughs> well, you've right got now, a, you've you got know? some pretty broad leeway because you could talk <laughs> about the consulting industry, but I think more so just this environment of small business in general, uh, and and the maybe the customers that yeah. you serve and what they look like and what they're going through. Yeah, so I think that general, generally speaking, the market, from my perspective, if you want to look at this as growth advisory services, um, you know, mine being largely in the customer acquisition and retention area, where yours might be a little a little more focused on ops and st- real strategic planning, right. as opposed to you know the stuff that we do um, collectively, um, is is good in the sense that there's a lot of there's a lot of broken businesses out there right now, right, that need help. Um, and there's a lot more owners that are inclined to acknowledge that they need help, right? They've just simply stalled out, and they have, they, they have desires to pass businesses on. They have desires to exit quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they have requirements by shareholders to grow. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm finding that, that there's a, a general positive sort of sentiment in the market right now and opportunity in the market, I'll say, because there's a lot of businesses that need help. <clears throat> um, you know, so so that's the good news from my perspective is that there's you know we're we're not we're not short of opportunities to help businesses. I think that, I think that, you know, the the thing to work at to I would advise businesses to do everything and anything they can to engage their current customers because you know the old the old saying that you know cost you know three times as much to acquire a new customer as it does to keep the one you have Mm -hmm. i think is critically important and i think that this pandemic has taught a lesson to a lot of businesses that they really have to you know stick to their knitting and protect their customer base Mm -hmm. and for those that out there that that perhaps didn't take advantage of the opportunity to engage those customers over the course of the last year do it now Mm -hmm. um because you know customers need to know that you're listening to them customers need to know that you can relate and that you are building product and programs around their their unique requirements so i think that 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 taking a a, you know a customer a customer centric customer playing a customer advocate role is is critical to you know the long-term success of these businesses Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I can think of a couple of examples in the neighborhood around my home where small businesses uh, did just that. And uh, through a lot of the, the shutdowns and semi-shutdowns were m- maybe more proactive or more visible in communicating to customers why they were doing and what they were doing. Uh, but I can say probably the, the thing that resonated most with me was just their profound gratitude and thankfulness oh, for us so showing up and yeah. you know having breakfast at their restaurant on a Saturday morning or visiting their hardware store on a Saturday afternoon and bending over backwards to to just say thank you 
you know, and that and it, it seemed like it was more than it seemed like a very coordinated effort. You know, like I don't know if the owner in the huddle's like, say thank you today. Like, make sure you say thank you to fifty people before before the day's done. Yeah. Um, but those businesses are killing it right now. Yeah. I, mean, I think the 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 businesses that are are I'll call them direct to consumer, right? But retail oriented, service oriented, um, they, they are ahead of B two B. They're B two B counterparts in that they they are forced to engage customers every day, and I love that that the expression of gratitude is powerful. Mm-hmm. And so you know, for the B two B clients that are out there, um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage them to engage the customers and say thanks for sticking with us, yeah. uh, and let them know what you're planning to do and enhance value and service to them going forward. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us and uh, expressed that gratitude. I feel like we could go another hour and a half pretty easily, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but maybe we'll save that for visit number two, which we'll, uh, we'll put on the calendar. So thank you, John. really appreciate your time, your expertise, and you're willing to share it with all of us. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the talk. Thanks, John. Yeah. All right. Okay, is there anything uh, you want to circle back to? Yeah. So, okay. so we we do we'll kind of keep it rolling, and this is this is much more less less brainstorming. Formal. So I I really had this I wouldn't say an epiphany because I'm not that smart, but I had this idea as you're talking about B to C and splitting and really going back all the way to the beginning. We're talking about alignment, and alignment in the the best sense is we get the the frontline workers empowered and ha- give them KPIs that we're setting measurements against. And it was, it was in that conversation that you mentioned uh, retail and, and my experience in retail, not traditional retail, but with supermarkets with Publix. I worked at Publix for three years before I left college. And I just, I, 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 I want to brainstorm. I want to get your guys' feedback on maybe something that is it's certainly non-traditional. I've never seen it. Maybe grocery stores do it. But it's exploring that idea of empowering individuals. And you mentioned uh, the KPI for, for the number of customers that they check out or the total, the total number of the total dollar value of their, their checkouts for the day or whatever. And, you know, when I worked at Publix, it was hourly rate. You get paid for doing nothing. Like I could, I could go and have a break. I didn't, you know, I, I did. You weren't that kind of employee. Just yeah, I wish else. I could say I wasn't <laughs> now, that kind now of he's employee. Clean. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be totally honest. There was, uh, there was my fair share of uh, management assistance that I did do uh, that was totally unrelated. Just doing, running various errands. So, um, but this thing that I, I thought of was like how unconventional and what would the possibility be for a new type of supermarket or a new type of retail space that takes that alignment to the nth degree and really empowers their employees. And that, that cashier who sits at that belt and waits for the customer to come up to them is no longer compensated by the hour, but they're compensated a portion of all the customers that they serve that day. What kind of alignment does like, what kind of, change does that make in the supermarket business in the industry where you now have people who are personally vested in serving as many customers as they can and giving them the best experience and making you know like because now i get a i get a 
I get a paid per, a percentage of all of the sales that I do this day. Like I think there'd be a lot more bruised tomatoes in the checkout line as they <laughs> no, lose. No, because you, you go back to the customer <laughs> retention piece, and you go back to understanding your customers. You can't you can't just be flipping with their potatoes or the tomatoes. Or but you didn't say you're going to measure them on retention. You said you're going to measure them on the number of people they proceeds. checked out. Yeah. But if that customer says, "I'm never going to Devin again because he bruised my tomatoes." Then I'm out of a job. Your line's a lot shorter. Retail's tough. Retail's tough. And I think anytime we talk about KPIs, there's that the law of unintended consequences that kicks in. You know, like, well, we, we thought this was a good measure until we started having lots of bruised tomatoes. I'm like, maybe maybe speed of checkout isn't the most. Like, yeah. call, call centers are a great example, right? So we're going to measure your average call time because the more calls you can take, the more efficient we're going to be. But I'm not saying the measure is speed. I'm not saying the measure is speed of checkout. I'm saying the measure is, like, it, the measure is, hey, we want we want you to perform well, and the way that we're going to measure that is the total vol- dollar volume that you check out each day. And if you earn X dollar amount of volume that you check out each day, then you're in this bracket of compensation. You get X percentage of the total sales or the total checkout that you do for the day. So it's an incentive for that employee to not just be fast because you don't want bruised tomatoes because then that customer's never going to come to you again. But it's also an incentive for them to be gregarious and personable and engage the customer and ask how they're doing and be likable and persuade and influence the customer to continue to come through their line on a weekly and you know, monthly basis. Do you remember when Walmart used to be known as the, you know, the, the, the retailer who had the greeters and the greeters were supposed to be some sort of you know, special mer- niche, mer- right. merchandising uh, approach that made people feel good? Mm-hmm. I bet you haven't. You don't even remember the last greeter. If you were in a Walmart anytime recently, um, you probably don't even remember the last greeter. Now, when you go into Home Depot, every time you complete a transaction with Home Depot, they'll give you the receipt and the and the and the and the cashier. Are they called cashiers now? They are. Yeah, still. Will circle something on the sales receipt that encourages you to go take this survey. And by the way, you know, if I get a ten. <laughs> you know, I get points for that. And so they're leading the witness a little bit. Um, that doesn't work. I mean, I can't remember the last time I ever went up to Home Depot's website to give someone a good grade. But there's something that I remember in retail, and specifically the grocery stores you're talking about, that, Devin, that, that kind of struck me is, um, you know, the thing that I remember most about my grocery store experience is the, I think it was called Market Basket. It's up in Boston. Mm-hmm. And they almost wouldn't let you get out of the store without um, um, a bagger asking, if not insisting, on helping you to your car, right? And that just kind of stuck with me, and especially down here in Florida, I think that that kind of service in a grocery business would be an interesting KPI, how many customers you get to accept your offer of help mm-hmm. uh, with the groceries to the car, make sure they get there safely, make sure the cart is returned where it's supposed to be and don't burden the customers with it. That's the only thing I can imagine, you know, on that, you know, sort of on that, on that, employment level right that would that would be um again coming back to customers right sure so when your customer's happy business is good and that was a way that that impacted me i don't know that it would would certainly result in me going back to that store assuming that they had mm-hmm. you know potatoes that or uh, tomatoes that weren't bruised yeah, yeah i think um, we're talking was, about incentivizing people you know piece rate just you're, what you're talking about is closer to piece yeah. rate, right? Piece rate is the kind of gold standard for performance compensation, right? I mean, like like you, you eat what you kill kind of thing. Yeah. Um, however, piece rate tends to be applied very specifically by job function, 
So we pay, you know, the the roofer by the square that they put on, but we don't pay the accountant by the square the roofers put on, right? So now, you, so now you're in this struggle to now I've got to identify well, what's the correct piece rate, quote unquote, calculation for the roofer, and what's the piece rate calculation for the accountant, what's the piece rate calculation yeah. for the receptionist, and pretty soon I have this cacophony of KPIs that are directly tied to people's compensation and we have business owners all the time and that's what they want like I want to I want everybody to be compensated you know but for performance and we're going to measure this person this way and this person this way and this and that's where this unintended consequence is they start to run all over each other yeah and then you get to profit sharing which is the the broadest term of performance compensation it says everybody's going to benefit if everybody benefits, right? We're going to have one pool of profit sharing money. And if the business does well, we'll all share in that. There just has to be mechanisms for how that gets distributed pro rata. Peace rate's pretty easy to tie performance to pay. Profit sharing requires what you were talking about, John, which is, does everybody know the plan? And do they know how their performance ties into the accomplishment of the plan? Mm -hmm. So do they know how to contribute so that they can do profit sharing? And you know, in a utopian world, like everybody, every business has some kind of profit share plan and a system that identifies how people can can contribute and kind of universal knowledge of what everybody else's contribution looks like so that there's some self-policing and accountability when I see you not pulling your weight as the roofer or the accountant or the receptionist and I'm killing it and I know profit sharing pool is growing because of my efforts but it's being hamstrung because of yours and I encourage you to get your act together and it's like a holy grail I don't know if you'll ever get there grocery stores I I I've, I never said I was going to do it I mean I just like the <laughs> idea <laughs> I think you know in the retail environment uh it, a lot of times it's experience based I mean remember the difference between circuit city and best buy Right, circuit city. If you ever walked into a circuit city, they were paid on commission, and you knew it. Like they were all over you. Best Buy, they weren't paid on commission. Right. They were paid, you know, basically a better hourly rate. Right. And I would always prefer to go into Best Buy. Sure. I, I haven't seen a circuit city in a long, long time. I think right? they're done. Aren't they? I think they are done. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that speaks to it. But I think there are other examples where the business decided to focus on the customer experience. And if they were able to generate a KPI based on experience, you, t- you talked about empowerment. Probably the universal example or the one that's most held out of empowerment is the Ritz-Carlton and every employee is empowered to spend up to $1,000 of company money to, to satisfy a guest or to, to resolve a guest's issue. Well, I wasn't worried about that. Yeah, and so you know, how, does, how does Ritz-Carlton, what KPI do they use to measure the effectiveness of that? You know, is it, is it property occupancy? Is it revenue per, per day? I mean, there's probably one, but again, they've gone to, you know, we talk about leading versus lagging indicators, right? And so guest satisfaction is probably the leading indicator to repeat business. So how do you focus on guest satisfaction? You empower people to make sure they're satisfied. But, um, I don't know. I'm going to think about you now. Every time I'm standing at a checkout line no at doubt. Publix that I think is too long, I'll be like, this guy should be paid different, and we could resolve this thing. Well, <laughs> when you when you come around to the idea, then maybe we can all partner together and start a new grocery chain. <laughs> yeah, a, I'm not sure I want to compete against Publix. Yeah, they're, they're tough cookie. 
So unrelated, you know, I'm just curious, um, and maybe you're already doing this, but you know, given given your model, like all the different customers that you're calling on, some of which are in a in certain categories, right, certain industries, and the approach that you take to serving most of them, do, do you have the ability to benchmark? Like, can you share with clients, anonymize the data, but share benchmarks so that they understand how they compare against others, their competitors in their industry? I would think that we, would have huge value to them. It is, benchmarking is a huge, is perceived as a huge value by business owners. They all want to know, like, how am I doing against right. the guy down the street? Uh, maybe not specifically the guy down the street, but the the guy down the street in general. Mm -hmm. And um, it's tough for us because outside of a couple of, industries we don't do enough business in that industry to be able oh, to benchmark there's uh i mentioned pest control one of the clients that we used to work with um pest control company they when we stopped doing any of the financial functions for them they moved to a business uh it's located i think somewhere in tennessee and they do like 300 pest control companies across the country and that's one of the big kind of value adds is that they'll benchmark. They do a benchmarking report mm -hmm. and you can see exactly, you know, like I think, I think the, the general population, you know, if you own a pest control company, you can buy this report and it'll say, okay, the top quartiles here. But if you're a client, it says like your rank among the 300 in this category is 156, you know, right. or whatever. Right. Uh, to do that requires that they uh, become very, very stringent in terms of how their accounting and reporting functions are are assembled. So you have to move to a standard chart of accounts. They basically tear your chart of accounts apart and put it back together according to their standards so they can spit those reports out. Uh, I think we've looked at um, we've looked at benchmarking services in the past. There's one called ProfitSense, uh, but it's, and when I looked at it last, I didn't feel like the value was there because the data, because there isn't a standard chart of accounts, they're kind of limited to tax return data for yeah. comparison, and that's a little bit too broad for what we're trying to do. Yeah, I was thinking that maybe you had enough, enough, a higher a high enough concentration of customers in yeah. a single industry that you could aggregate that on your own. What we do a lot, and we've done this, uh, we've got a couple clients in the insurance industry, and we pull, there's a couple of national firms that compile best practices survey data every year so we get copies of those reports and we can kind of see where they stack up in terms of top quartile you know middle mm -hmm. that kind of stuff but there it's a huge value uh not one that we can produce internally yeah not yet not yet, not yet. that's true here's it's your, here's your brand day. extension there you go <laughs> <laughs> so this has absolutely gone through me so i'm gonna have to break yeah it well thanks for your time this has been great awesome yeah. nice meeting you Enjoyed it. great seeing you again absolutely love the talk we'll go fishing soon yeah.